And welcome to Crosser Auditorium at Goucher College. I'm Sanford Unger, president of the college, and we are very pleased to be celebrating tonight our spring 2013 Robert and Jane Meyerhoff visiting professorship. Our guest this evening, as you know, is Nicholas Kristoff, journalist, author, two-time Pulitzer Prize winner from the New York Times. Uh, the Meyerhoff Visiting Professorship was created to bring distinguished scholars, teachers, practitioners to Goucher's campus to advance the dialogue on pressing issues of our time. For several years, we focused on an environmental theme, as you may remember, and last year we began to concentrate on the intersection of civic engagement and politics. This past fall's Robert and Jane Meyerhoff Visiting Professor was Doris Kearns Goodwin, the Pulitzer Prize winning author and presidential historian. Last year, we hosted Cory Booker, the mayor of Newark, and David Brooks of the New York Times. Uh, before going on introducing tonight's speaker, I just want to pause and thank Robert Meyerhoff for all that he and his late wife, Jane, have done for this college over the years. Uh, their names are all over the campus on professorships and, and uh, buildings and supported all the great things at Goucher. And so, uh, please join me in thanking Bob. And also, also, of course, we're delighted to have other members of the Meyerhoff family with us this evening. And we also want to recognize our good friend, Rita Becker, who helps us with this landmark series and always has the best ideas. Rita, wherever you are, thank you, too. And now I'd like to introduce um, Nicholas Kristof. He joined the New York Times in 1984, just a couple years out of college, initially covering economics, later served as a correspondent in Los Angeles, Hong Kong, Beijing, and Tokyo. He covered presidential politics, was for a time associate managing editor responsible for Sunday editions. Um, I might mention that Nick uh, grew up on a sheep and cherry farm in Yamhill, Oregon. Uh, he went to Harvard as a student of government and had what many regard as the best journalistic training there is as a staff member of the Harvard Crimson. Nick and his wife Cheryl Wu Dunn, then also a, t a Times journalist, won a Pulitzer Prize for their coverage of China's Tiananmen Square democracy movement. He won a second Pulitzer in 2006, uh, 16 years later, for what the judges called his, quote, graphic deeply reported columns that, at personal risk, focused attention on genocide in Darfur and gave voice to the voiceless in other parts of the world. And that is what Nick Kristof is known for, his writing on behalf of the people whose own voice is not very often heard. He's won many other prizes as well. He uh, has been a columnist for the Times for the, since 2001, and uh, his columns appear twice a week, often focusing on global health, poverty, and gender issues in the developing world. Uh, in addition to his book entitled Half the Sky, Turning Oppression into Opportunity for Women Worldwide, Nick and his wife Cheryl are authors of China Wakes, The Struggle for the Soul of a Rising Power, and Thunder from the East, Portrait of a Rising Asia. In addition to graduating from Harvard College, Nick uh, was a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford where he uh, studied law and graduated with top honors. He uh, later studied Arabic in Cairo and Chinese in Taipei. He's lived on four continents, 
reported on six, and traveled to more than 140 countries, plus all 50 American states. He is the essential modern journalist, and still writing for newspapers, I'm pleased to say. Nick will discuss tonight the central theme of his book, Half the Sky, Turning Oppression into Opportunity for Women Worldwide, and he'll take questions from the audience following it. Let me remind you of our rule that Goucher students have the first priority to ask questions. There are microphones on either side, and I will moderate the discussion period. Nick will also sign books afterwards in the uh, Rosenberg Gallery. So please join me in welcoming the spring 2013 Robert and Jane Meyerhoff visiting professor, Nicholas Kristoff. Thank you. Thanks very much. I'm really delighted to be here. Um, I've been uh, very aware and very enthusiastic about Goucher, actually for reasons that have nothing to do with Half the Sky and have everything to do with the requirement that students study abroad. I'm a huge believer in that. I'm periodically sending my own three kids um, abroad, and actually one is on a gap year right now, um, and have, have written about this in my column. I think one of the things that, frankly, higher education doesn't always do really well is, is not be international enough, and you guys are pioneers in that. Um, and also, I should say that you know, for those of you who are planning your trip abroad, your time abroad, I would really encourage you to think of abroad um, in terms of not just going with a herd of other students to London or Rome, but truly going totally out of your comfort zone somewhere you know, that will give your parents gray hairs, um, <laughs> which is essentially the point of being a teenager anyway. Um, and... I mean, I, I have to say that my own um, experience like that was, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I recommend it to you. I was, um, I studied abroad in Egypt, and I was learning Arabic. And I will never forget the first time that I had an Arabic conversation. I, I was so proud of myself, because I, I recognized that somebody said, Ismak eh? Um, and in Egypt, that's, uh, what is your name? So I said, Ismi, for my name is. And I thought, Nicholas Kristoff is way too complicated. So I just said, Ismi, Nick. Well, the guy I was talking to looked at me in horror. And he stepped back and he asked in this very tremulous voice again, he repeated, Ismak, eh? You know, I knew something had gone profoundly wrong. I had no idea what. Um, but kind of following the basic American idea that anybody can understand English if it's spoken loudly enough. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I just beamed and I stepped toward him and said, it's me, Nick. Well, he just ran away. Um, and how was I to know that Nick, how do I put this? Um, <laughs> anybody speak Arabic? <laughs> uh, Nick is essentially the F word in Arabic. But actually, to make it worse is the conjugation, because it's, um, it's, the, um, it's the familiar. It's like the two form. So you're not only being vulgar, you're being condescending. Uh, and to be precise, it's the familiar imperative. So, you know, my friends would see me in the Cairo market and yell, hey, Nick, we just about start a riot. <laughs> um, 
And then, in a sense, for those of you who are going to go abroad, that's sort of what I wish on you. This sense of being just really out of your comfort zone and not knowing what is going on. Because when you are out of your comfort zone in that way, when you're really thinking, you know, boy, this is, <laughs> this is not Baltimore, that is really when you're growing new muscles, learning new things, learning new things that you can't learn in a classroom. And uh, I really commend that experience to you. And I should also say that there are plenty of ways to get out of your comfort zone and get that kind of experience, not only halfway around the world in Cairo or India or Tanzania, but I'm sure there are plenty of places right here in Baltimore where you can also get out of your comfort zone and have that kind of a learning experience and grow new muscles and, and, um, and be exposed to the kind of things that do build an education in the broadest sense. And um, so I'm, I congratulate you on having this incredible opportunity to study abroad. And uh, I really commend to you the idea of using that to uh, really get out of what feels nice and warm and cozy and to totally try new things. And that's my, that's, that's my pitch. Now on to half the sky. <laughs> um, the, um, let's see if this will advance it. Um, well, abracadabra. Let me try that. Here we go. Um, yeah, so um, uh, the, uh, the, the notion of half the sky comes from the Chinese saying, anybody, I bet somebody has learned Chinese here. Who knows how to say half the sky in Chinese? Test time. You get an A plus if you manage to say it. Ban Bian Tian. And um, Cheryl and I got the idea. I'm still determined to make this work, you know? No? <laughs> well, uh, so much for my tech skills. Um, the, we got the idea, Cheryl and I, my wife Cheryl Wudan, and I got the idea for it when we were living in China. Um, that's us in Tiananmen Square uh, with our eldest son a few months ago. And <laughs> I'm offended. <laughs> my feelings are hurt. Is it really that obvious? Yeah. Um, one way of gauging it is that my, uh, our son there is um, now a college sophomore, which sort of goes to show how quickly kids grow up in just a few months, you know? Um, so when we were in China, though, we began to see what happens when you do really invest in, in, in girls, the kind of returns that you can get. And a place we particularly saw this, and kind of by chance, was um, this... Uh, village in Hubei province, uh, in the middle of the country, in the Dabia Mountains, a very poor area. This is 1990. And we were writing about how there were so many girls who were having to drop out of school, essentially because their parents didn't really think it was worth educating a daughter. And this girl, Daimanju, was the brightest kid in school. And she had to drop out in the sixth grade for one of $13 in annual school fees. Um, she would hang out very forlornly outside the school gates, and uh, the teachers would try to help her. Well, we picked her as the poster child of this phenomenon and put her picture across three columns on the front page of the New York Times with an article about these girl dropouts. And you can imagine what happened. We got deluged with 
this is 1990, so not email, but deluged with letters from readers, um, mostly containing checks for $13. Uh, New York Times readers are incredibly generous in kind of very modest increments. <laughs> I feel like I'm insulting some of you. <laughs> no. um, um, and, but we also, though, got a wire transfer for $10,000 from one reader. $10,000. And we took all of this money down. We worked out a deal with the principal, who's the man standing there, whereby that money would go to keep girls in school. Girls who otherwise would have to drop out, they would now be, uh, be able to attend as long as they could maintain the grades. And those girls were thrilled. For the first time in this, in this village, your career prospects would depend not on your chromosomes, but on your intellectual capacity. Then we called up the donor of the $10,000 to give him a report, and he seemed surprised that we would call him up, and we explained, you've had this incredible impact, and he seemed more surprised, and we said, you just don't understand how far $10,000 will go in rural China. Well, he kind of gasped and said, $10,000? I only sent $100. Yeah, so now it was our turn to gasp. Uh, it turned out, indeed, that he had only um, wired, or he'd only attempted to wire $100. But the bank in New York had had a little trouble with that little tricky decimal point. So we, we figured that banker was later put in charge of subprime mortgages, you figure? <laughs> We didn't know what to do. You know, we couldn't imagine going back to all these girls and saying, oh, sorry, it was all a mistake. You know, banking mistake in New York. You know, at the end of the month, end of the quarter, they're going to figure out the error and, and try to get that money back. We couldn't do that. Um, I'm not hugely proud of what I did next. Uh, and for those of you, I know there's some student journalists here, please forget what I'm about to say or just plug your ears, okay? Um, I... Um, I called up the chief spokesman for the bank, who I, who I, who I knew, I'd, I'd interviewed him, um, and I explained exactly what had gone wrong. You know, they'd made this banking error. These girls were now depending on it to get an education. Then I sort of let slip the follow-up article I was working on. <laughs> And I said now, um, on the record, are you going to try to get the $9,900 back and force all these girls to drop out of school? <laughs> and he didn't miss a beat. He said, on the record, under the circumstances, we're delighted to make a donation of the difference. <laughs> so that was 1990. And we periodically visited since and been able to kind of follow what happened in that community. And it's been fascinating. Daimonju herself became the first person in her family to graduate from elementary school, from middle school, from high school, then earned an accounting degree, uh, joined a, a large accounting firm, and then after a number of years, uh, left Ed and started her own accounting firm. All the while, sent money back to the village that was used by relatives to start small businesses. So many other girls who otherwise would have been working in the rice paddies or uh, looking after goats on the hillsides, ended up getting a great education and using that education to get a great job in ways that benefited not just them, 
but their entire families, their entire communities. If you go back now to the Dabi Mountains, well, obviously make no mistake, all of China, uh, all of the Dabi Mountains has dramatically uh, become richer and better educated since 1990. But when you go around these villages, this one has far and away surpassed all those little ones right around it. And the reason is this one-time bank error, what, uh, 23 years ago. Um, and to us, it really, as we watched that transformation, really underscored to us the way when you educate girls who otherwise are marginalized from communities, when you educate them, bring them into the formal labor market, then you can see this sort of virtuous cycle unfold that truly benefits the entire community. And that got us thinking, uh, Cheryl and me, and, and we began to focus our reporting a little more in this direction. And the more we, we looked, kind of the more we found, and we ended up kind of pursuing two tracks that ultimately became themes of, of Half the Sky. And the first theme is uh, maybe the grimmer one, and that is the injustices that are um, uh, disproportionately directed at women and girls on the basis of gender. And uh, to put it bluntly, we argue that just as in the 19th century, the central moral challenge for the world was slavery. And in the 20th century, the paramount moral challenge was totalitarianism. That in this century, the central moral challenge, and for those of you who are students, I would argue the, the, the central moral challenge of, of, of your lifetimes, is this kind of uh, oppression that is the lot of so many women and girls uh, around the world. Now, when we say that, I think people tend to think that is meant in a hyperbolic way, and it's, it's not. Uh, I think that's absolutely the case. Uh, and actually, to explain why, let me turn the tables on you and ask you a question. Um, are there more males or females in the world today? Let's, um, let's put this to a vote here. Uh, uh, anybody think there are more males in the world today? There's a forlorn hand. A few, okay, a few hands. Uh, and who thinks there are more females in the world today? Um, I'm afraid the first group was right. Actually, more males in the world. Um, there are more females in the US. There are more females in Europe. There are more females of Goucher. Uh, <laughs> given equal access to food and health care, women live longer. So in an equitable world, there would be more females. But the point is that it's not an equitable world. And one gauge of that inequity is, is this, uh, this gender gap in the population. Um, this is a photo that I took in Ethiopia. Um, you look at it, you see hunger, you see starvation. But what you need to know is that every kid in that emergency feeding center was a boy. And this girl's brothers were doing just fine. And in so much of the world, if there isn't enough food to go around, you feed your son and you don't feed your daughter. And when your son is sick, you take him to the doctor. When your daughter is sick, you know, you feel her forehead and say, let's see how you're doing tomorrow. And the result of that is a differential in mortality rates. 
so that girls are much more likely to die, uh, especially in the first five years. And the result of that differential in mortality rates, and in recent years, as ultrasound has reached more and more areas, um, you have uh, differentials in abortion rates. You have sex-selective abortion. And uh, the upshot of all of this is that you have some, depending on what demographer does the math, somewhere between 60 and 120 million females who are missing from the globe, who in a sense have been discriminated against to death. And uh, if you, and that is why there are more males and females worldwide. If you slice and dice it by decade, then in any 10-year period, you have more girls who are discriminated against to death than you have all the people who died in all the genocides of the 20th century. Just a stunning number. It's truly stunning. And when you think of it in those terms, I think it's easier to see why this would indeed be the central moral challenge for the century. Well, that's one kind of track that we ended up pursuing. But the other track is maybe a more optimistic one, a more positive one. It's that putting aside the injustices, uh, if you simply look at where you get traction to, where you get leverage to bring about change on so many of the issues we really care about, then that leverage comes in educating those girls, bringing those educated women into the formal labor force, and seeing the same kind of a a virtuous spiral of development has happened in that village uh, in Hubei province in, uh, in China. Put it another way, women and girls aren't the problem, uh, but they're the solution. One reason for that, one reason why you get a particular uh, bang for the buck by educating a girl has to do with birth rates, that so many of the problems in the developing world are in one way or another linked to very high birth rates. It, uh, has to do with, um, obviously intimately connected with global poverty, also with stress, environmental stresses on the land, often with uh, conflicts between various, uh, uh, with, with various ethnic groups, um, this kind of thing. And when you educate a boy, then on balance he will have fewer children, but it's a somewhat marginal effect. If you educate a girl, it has a very dramatic effect on the number of children she will be expected to have in her lifetime. And she's more likely to then uh, not only have fewer kids, but to invest more resources in those that she does have and look and try to get more education for them as well. Well, um, if this is indeed the, the, the central moral challenge for the world, then what would an agenda look like? And I would argue that one of the issues that has to be top of the agenda is uh, human trafficking around the globe, which at its extreme really is a modern form of slavery. Um, Cheryl and I became, I think, aware of the severity of it initially in Cambodia when we were reporting. This is a, a brothel in Cambodia. These girls were, for the most part, kidnapped in rural areas. Um, they're locked up in the brothel. Uh, they don't have any say about, they don't get any of the money it all goes to the brothel owner. They have no say on whether the customer uses condoms. They, they have no say over anything. And they're brutally mistreated if they, if they try to resist. Um, one of the things that people sometimes know that I, that I did that, that raised a lot of eyebrows in the journalistic world was I ended up buying two girls from uh, separate brothels in 2004. Um, one was this girl, Straynette. 
uh, uh, paid um, $150 for her and $200 for you know, Srimam right here in the white blouse. Um, and and I, by the way, I should say that the brothel owner is that woman in the back there in the, in the brown shirt. There's sometimes a tendency to think that because terrible things are happening to women and girls that you know, the culprits are, are men. And it is so much more complicated than that. Most of the traffickers around the world are actually women. Uh, most of the people who make the critical decisions about female genital mutilation are women. Um, the best predictor of whether somebody is for or against wife beating is not their gender, but it's how much education they've had and whether they live in a city or, or rural area. Um, so, you know, there's clearly a problem with misogyny and patriarchal attitudes, but those are attitudes and values that can be absorbed and transmitted almost as much by women as by men. Um, so back to these girls. Um, the, so, uh, we, I took them back to their, um, to their families, I tried to start them over in small business. It's a long story that we talk about in, um, in, uh, in the book. Uh, the thing that really struck me the most, though, uh, was that when I bought them, I got written receipts, written receipts from the brothel owner. It's like buying a car, taking title to a car or to a cow or something. And when you get written receipts for buying a human being in the 21st century, something really is profoundly wrong. Um, I think I should also say that, I mean, I, one reason why we sometimes tune these issues out is a sense of hopelessness, that it's too bad, but Prostitution, the world's oldest profession, that's just the way things are. Um, and in Cambodia over the years, I've truly seen some real improvements, and indeed in, in other countries as well. And one reason is the uh, pressure from the U.S. government. Um, Hillary Clinton in particular, she met some of these girls on a visit to Cambodia, sent a strong message through the Cambodian uh, government uh, that the U.S. was behind them. Um, aid organizations were pushing the issue. Journalists were writing about it. It all had an impact on the Cambodian government. And the government didn't actually close down these brothels. Um, but um, uh, it did began, begin to demand more in, uh, in bribes uh, from the brothel owners. And um, what, what happened with... With the other girl, Strainette, uh, so I took her back to her family and things kind of worked out just fine uh, for her. For Stray Mom, she turned out to be addicted to methamphetamine. And so after I took her back, a few days later she ran back to the brothel. And a couple more times we tried to start her over. Each time she ended up running back because of this craving for, for meth. And I frankly thought she would end up just dying of AIDS in that brothel. And then because the police were demanding more in bribes from the brothel owner, that woman back there, um, you know, she's just a businesswoman. She can make a little bit more money kidnapping these girls in rural areas than she can uh, stealing motorcycles or selling pirated DVDs. And so because of the higher bribes were eroding her business model, she closed the brothel and turned it into a grocery store. And that, so she freed the, the girls. Um, and um, Srimam ended up marrying a policeman who had been a customer in the brothel. I, uh, 
I think part of the thinking there was that if you were addicted to methamphetamine in rural Cambodia, then a policeman is going to be a pretty steady source. Um, so, you know, this, this is far from an ideal solution, and there's no justice for what went on beforehand. But at the end of the day, that trafficker is no longer kidnapping girls. Um, these girls are out of the brothel. Um, and in the same way, I think that 100 years from now, there may well still be prostitution, but I think we really can work toward a system where there are no longer 14-year-old girls being uh, sold, whether it's in Cambodia or in the U.S. And one of the things that I, uh, as I began to write more about trafficking in other countries, one of the things I increasingly became aware of was that while the worst abuses of trafficking tend to be in other countries, Cambodia, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Nepal, uh, Malaysia, um, but while the atrocities tend to be worse in those brothels, we have a huge problem right here at home, and we don't have the moral authority to tell other countries to clean up their act unless we do much, much more right here at home. This is a um, young woman I, I uh, met. Uh, I think there's a perception sometimes that human trafficking is about foreign women smuggled into the U.S. That is indeed one of the problems. There's this real problem. But I'd say that the biggest part of the problem is not foreign women smuggled into the U.S., but rather homegrown girls. And what typically happens is this is a, a girl from um, maybe a troubled family. She's, on, she's having a difficult relationship with her mom. And uh, she, she's around 12 or 13 or 14. Uh, maybe her mom's boyfriend is hitting on her. She runs away. She, she goes to the bus station or to a mall. And, and the only guy... The only people on the lookout for girls like that at those places are the pimps. And, you know, at first she thinks she's found this wonderful new boyfriend, and then a few days later he's selling her, um, starving her if she doesn't meet a quota, um, threatening to beat her up, or in fact beating her up if she, if she ever even thinks of running away. Um, that's what happened um, to Alyssa here. You can't you can't actually see it in this photo, but on her left cheek, she has a, uh, uh, a scar um, where the pimp gouged her cheek with a potato peeler as a warning not to ever try to run away. And indeed, later when she did run away, um, he found her and uh, put her in the hospital with broken ribs and a, just a brutal beating. But she testified against him, sent the pimp to jail, and now is working um, with young people to warn them about the dangers of going back. Um, and that's one element of what is needed. The other thing, though, is that I think there's this profound misunderstanding about uh, the relationship between these girls and the pimps. And it, view that they are somehow business partners, or we see these girls out in the street wearing inappropriate clothing, sort of come hithering vehicles, and we think, oh, you know, they're there because they want to be there. And it's so much more complicated than that. And people don't, I think, see the coercion that those pimps are uh, applying and the violence that they are applying. And it, 
just outrages me that the police and prosecutors will consistently go after the girls, even very young girls, and are much less likely to go after the Johns and especially the pimps. And there have been some jurisdictions now that have been um, going after the pimps, and they show that it can be done. Actually, just um, I was just checking emails a little bit earlier, and um, in the Eastern District of Virginia, the U.S. Attorney Neil McBride has been um, just going after human trafficking, and there's been one case after another. So there's just one more case uh, today. Um, and uh, there hadn't been until he started this push. And you know, likewise, I think if prosecutors uh, put their focus on it, then, then it's all over. And one really can realign the incentives and change the cost-benefit analysis for those pimps. And I think it's long overdue uh, that we do that. Um, and I should say that you know, there's, there's a whole separate issue about what one does with, with uh, consensual prostitution uh, for adults. And you know, one, one can have that bait, one can you know, put that aside, that the issue is there is so much coercion and there are so many girls under 18 that can, they can keep prosecutors busy for a long, long time. Um, well, another uh, issue that I think has to be uh, much higher on the agenda is reproductive health more broadly. And, um, and it's been one that has kind of gotten a back seat because of the um, radioactivity of abortion politics in this country. Nobody wants to touch reproductive health, even those areas like uh, providing more family planning where there is something more of a consensus. Um, and, or maternal mortality. One of the things that just breaks your heart is when you travel around, as you know, I do a win a trip contest each year. I take a student with me on a reporting trip. And on the first one of these, um, in Cameroon, we came across a mother of three um, who um, didn't have access to prenatal care or to a, a doctor or a clinic. And um, the traditional birth attendant in the village, when she had obstructed labor, when the baby didn't come, um, sat on her stomach, ruptured her uterus, and um, this woman, Prudence, we, we watched as she lay dying there uh, completely unnecessarily. Um, in, in this country, childbirth is, tends to be this very happy occasion. In some countries with, uh, like Niger or Sierra Leone, uh, at, at the worst of times, those countries have had a one in seven lifetime risk of a woman dying in childbirth, one in seven. And for every woman who dies in childbirth, about 20 are injured in childbirth. One of the, I mean, I've seen a lot of really devastating things in my reporting career, but one of the conditions that breaks my heart more than almost anything else is something called an obstetric fistula that I'm sure some of you have heard about. It typically happens to a teenage girl who isn't really ready to have a baby. Her pelvis isn't, isn't, isn't fully formed. She gets pregnant. Uh, the fetus gets stuck. There's no one around to help her deliver it or to do a C-section. Uh, baby dies. She suffers these devastating internal injuries that leave her incontinent. She's leaking wastes. She can't control herself. 
she stinks, she often has nerve damage in her legs. And, and this is something that used to happen in the U.S. before modern obstetrics survived. There was a, a fistula hospital in, in Manhattan, um, where, actually right where the Waldorf Astoria Hotel is right now. But it closed in, I think it was 1902, as, as healthcare improved. Um, uh, uh, this woman, Mahabuba, is from Ethiopia. Um, at age 12, she was married to a man of about 60 as a, I forget, the second or third wife. Um, she was not consulted in that. She got pregnant. Um, she delivered by herself out in the bush. Um, she wasn't ready. Her body wasn't ready to have a baby. Um, she ended up with a, a fistula and uh, she was stinking. The villagers thought that she'd been cursed by God. They put her in a hut at the edge of the village, and they took the door off the hut so the hyenas would get her that night. Um, Mahabuba is also just the strongest person you can imagine, and, I mean, toughest person. And there was a stick in the hut, and when the hyenas came at night, she, she, she had nerve damage on her legs, this, this foot drop, so she couldn't walk. Um, but she, she waved it around her, her head and shouted at them, kept them at bay all night. When dawn came, she thought her only hope would be to get to an American missionary who lived just over 30 miles away. She can't walk, so she sets off crawling. Uh, she crawls all day. Evening comes, she's still not there, and so she pulls herself into a tree so the hyenas won't get her that night. Spends the night in the tree. Um, lets herself down again. She finally arrives, half dead at the doorstep of this missionary, who can tell from the fact that she has just been through childbirth, that she stinks, that this is a fistula, that she's leaking waste, and takes her to a hospital in the capital, not a sub of a fistula hospital, supported by the Fistula Foundation, and she gets a $450 surgery uh, to repair it. And uh, an American doctor who's probably repaired more fistulas than any other American, Steve Arrowsmith, he does the repair. And afterward, they, they notice that she's, um, she, she's going through rehab for her nerve damage. And they see that she's really smart, really capable. And they ask her to help out. They're, understaffed. They ask her to help out, do this, do that. They give her more and more responsibilities. She's now a nurse at that hospital. Isn't that a wonderful story? Um, and to me, it's just a wonderful reminder of the fact that, you know, one could take people who are completely squandered assets and turn them into productive resources for their families, their communities, uh, their countries. Um, and the other point to make is that because of the toxicity of reproductive health, that family planning resources have just, um, nobody has wanted to, to go there. But that is the simplest and cheapest way to reduce mortal, uh, maternal mortality. If you reduce the number of pregnancies in half, then you're going to reduce maternal mortality uh, in half. And there are more than 100 million women around the world who want family planning, want access to family planning, and can't get access to it. And when you see these women dying so unnecessarily, um, then you wish that that message could get through, that this wouldn't be quite so politicized and polarized uh, an issue.
Another issue that I think has to be um, high on the agenda, um, perfect for a university, education. Um, there are no silver bullets in trying to address these issues, challenging issues either here at home or abroad. But you do, in a sense, have silver buckshot. And one of those really important elements of uh, buckshot is, uh, is, is education, especially girls' education. It's also something that we kind of know how to do. This is a girl named Beatrice Bira who uh, grew up in Uganda, and she was not sent to school because she was a girl. Her parents thought she could look after her younger siblings, fetch firewood, fetch water. And then, um, uh, I'm sure you know the group Heifer International. So a church in Connecticut got six goats through Heifer, and one of them ended up in the hands of uh, Beatrice's parents, and they sold the milk. They had a little more cash. They got a bit of a nudge from Heifer, and they used that milk money to pay Beatrice's school fees. Now, she's three years behind. She's truly a brilliant student. She um, races to the top of the class. All during elementary school, she's at the top of her class. In middle school, high school, she uh, ends up doing really well in nationwide examinations, becomes the first person in her village to go abroad to study, and a couple years ago, graduates from Connecticut College. And that's her at her graduation. Isn't that cool? At her graduation party here, uh, she declared, I'm the luckiest girl in the world, and it's all because of a goat. <laughs> um, we, um, it was really these stories that kind of impelled us to, to, you know, to write the book, Half the Sky, to, we, we did a, then we did a documentary on PBS, and the latest effort to strand new territory um, was a game on Facebook, a Half the Sky game on Facebook, uh, which we just um, unveiled a week ago. And I, since you are students, I commend it to you. Instead of doing your homework, please go to Facebook. Um, and, um, but there, there are a couple of ways in which we sometimes psych ourselves out. And let me just try to address uh, them. I think one is the question of, and actually it came up at, 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 at dinner right before this, about, you know, we have so many challenges right here at home, especially in an economic downturn. Should we really be worrying about, you know, girls in Uganda or in Hubei province in China when we have so many problems right here at home? Shouldn't we solve our own problems first? And here's how I, here's how I see that. I mean, I, I think... Uh, that we truly need to do a much better job of addressing problems right here. We can't just go gallivanting off to worry about Tanzanias and not look in our inner cities. And I also think it's true that sometimes it becomes, especially, frankly, among students, kind of cool to go off and spend a summer in um, Mexico or Costa Rica or... Uganda, wherever it may be, and not be exposed to kind of the, the, the whole layers of poverty that we have right here at home. If one wants to address poverty, there are plenty of ways one can do tutoring, do big brother, big sister, um, 
teach in prisons. There are plenty of things one could do close to home. And I think that it's a mistake to think of one as um, cool and sexy and the other as dreary. But having said that, I also really think that it's a mistake to um, say we've got to solve our own problems before we begin to worry about things abroad. Um, at the end of the day, especially when you have seen these kids, then our humanity, our compassion, our empathy should not depend on either on the color of somebody's skin or on the color of their passport. And there are times when the solutions abroad uh, are a lot more cost-effective than they are here. So for an individual, if you're trying to figure out how to save a marginal life, um, it may well be that you want to uh, donate to get a girl in school for $13, for example, uh, that it seems... Uh, so I guess what I'm saying is that I don't think it should be an either-or, and I think there are times when we need to focus resources right here, and I applaud those who do, but I also think it's a mistake to say, uh, you know, don't worry about things far away, that, they're, that we need all of the above. Another way in which we sort of psych ourselves out, I think, has to do with the question of whether it makes a difference. And I think there are a lot of people who would like to get engaged in these issues, but worry about corruption, uh, worry about whether aid organizations, charities really, really work. And let me just say, these are legitimate concerns. Anybody who has traveled knows that corruption is a huge problem in much of the developing world, that there are a lot of aid groups that don't accomplish an awful lot, that evaluation um, is often something of a joke within the, 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 the charity world. Um, but I think anybody, for, I mean, for example, anybody who's traveled, you see, you go and you see a water project that is put in, put in a well, at, put in at some expense, and then the, the washers give out after a year. There's no system in place to um, sustain it. And there's no one in charge uh, to, to pay for the new washers, to pay for repair. And it falls into disrepair, and people go back to drinking from the creek. And you see that. But it also has to be said that anybody who has traveled has also seen um, wells that have been put in where there is a system in place to cover repairs, and where that well keeps on going year after year, decade after decade, saving lives all that time, uh, and saving women maybe an hour of walking to some other uh, water source where it makes a tremendous difference. And I think we're also getting better at figuring out how to make a difference. One reason is that there are more young people who are spending time abroad studying and listening. You know, one of the classic problems, we run abroad and kind of announce, okay, here's what we're going to do. And it's so much more important to do some listening when we go and have local buy-in and have uh, local, use local expertise and knowledge. And I think we're getting better at that. Uh, for example, in the, uh, in the world of education, we're learning that it's not just a matter of building schools, but all kinds of other interventions. One of the, maybe the most cost-effective way of getting more kids in school isn't building a school. It's something we don't think about. It's deworming kids. We don't think about deworming because most American kids don't have intestinal parasites. In much of the developing world, kids do. And the upshot is that they're anemic. They're more likely to be sick. They're going to miss school. You can deworm a child with one pill of albendazole that 
typically lasts about a year, uh, costs $0.10, and uh, will dramatically reduce that child's absenteeism. Um, various studies suggest it's at least 25 times more cost-effective to get one more kid in school through deworming programs than through bricks and mortar. So we're getting, we're getting better. The other um, way in which we psych ourselves out, I think, has to do with the, the question of why should I care? And one answer to that is that if you've seen a girl who desperately wants to go to school and can't for lack of $13, if you've seen a girl who's locked up in a brothel, then you just don't ask that question. The other way of answering it, though, and that, by the way, that's one reason, again, why I really encourage you to travel, because when you see these things, it, it is so much, it, tr it truly can change your life and, and change your understanding of the world. But the other way of answering that question has to do with the benefits to, uh, to yourself. Um, we're learning a lot from um, uh, social psychology, from neurology about this. At the dinner earlier, I was uh, talking about this with one of the dinner guests, uh, and uh, he turned out to be a very distinguished neurologist. Um, so I'm, <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm cautious about this, but uh, there is, um, they, my, Cheryl and I actually recently did a brain scan of her own nucleus accumbens, which is the pleasure spot, of one of the pleasure centers of your brain. Uh, and it's something that lights up when you uh, eat chocolate, uh, when you have sex, when you uh, are happy, for, when you take drugs. It also lights up uh, when you contribute to a charity. There is this real primal pleasure from, uh, from, from engaging in a cause larger than yourself. And one of the things we're learning that a lot of things we think will make us happy tend to be material things, have a quite temporary effect. They momentarily make us happy, and then uh, after a while, we're right back to our set point. Engaging with a cause larger than yourself seems to be something that actually raises your set point, a set point of happiness. And I think it also gives us a different perspective on our own place in the world. And maybe for students, that's particularly important. This is one of the things one does go to university for is to acquire perspective. Let me just leave you with a story of a friend of mine who, a uh, young American woman who was an aid worker uh, in Sudan, in Darfur. Um, she was incredibly brave, incredibly strong. In Darfur, she saw things that no human being should ever have to see and um, never, never showed fear, never broke down. Uh, and then she's home She's in the U.S. in her grandmother's backyard of Christmas vacation. She totally loses it. She is just weeping and weeping. And you know what it was? Her grandmother had set up a bird feeder in the backyard. And my friend was thinking about what she had seen in Darfur. And then she thought of her incredible good fortune to be born in a country where we, even in an economic downturn, we can pretty much take food and clothing and housing for granted and even have enough extra 
to help wild birds get through the winter. That was your thought process. And, and her next step was thinking, given that good fortune, the obligation that follows. And in the same way, I think the fact that we are all here right now truly means you know, we have won the lottery of life. And when you have won the lottery of life, then I think there is a question about how you discharge that responsibility. And so I uh, invite you to join this cause, or if your students find some other cause that just truly speaks to you. And I think in the course of engaging with it, you'll find some measure of fulfillment or happiness and a measure of perspective. And we can change the world just a little bit. Thank you very much for having me here at Capture. Thank you, Nick. Um, let me see if there are people at the microphones. Well, let me start by asking you a question, and then we'll see. Remember, students first at the microphones. Um, I, I, I wonder um, whether there have been moments. I mean, your, your journalism career is a very privileged one in the sense that you've been able to write about whatever you choose after a certain point. And, um, and call attention to these truly gripping, sometimes mind-boggling stories. Is, has, have there been moments when you've been tempted to say, never mind, I'm going to stop going around and finding one cause after another, writing column or another after this, and I'm just going to commit myself to one of these things, change Change thought, my path. I thought you were going to say and do a seven-part series about the south of France. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> no well, that um, too, but... You know, um, I mean, there, there are certainly times when I have a lot of admiration for people who are actually out there in the field doing things. I'm basically in the lighting business. I'm shining a light on problems. And there, there are people who are actually on stage every day uh, doing the heavy lifting. And I hugely admire them. And there are... Uh, um, I'm sure there are times when I think, boy, that, um, you know, that would be more meaningful. And then I sort of think again and think, you know, boy, I have an incredible spotlight here. And this is a really powerful uh, light. I have incredible real estate in the New York Times uh, and uh, that I'm, I'm better off staying the lighting. So I think I'm going to be, I'm going to think I'll be manning my spotlight for all the time to come. <laughs> okay. Um, I can't see who that is. is that... Zach. Yes. Please yes. identify yourself. Uh, my name is Zach. I'm a sophomore political science and economics major. And uh, my question to you is, uh, recently in a class of mine, we discussed how Rwanda has one of their house representatives has a, I believe, 70% female uh, participation rate or uh, membership because they have women-only elections where only women can vote for other women. And because of the genocide, uh, Rwanda took the stance to help women and promote them in political lives and representation in Rwanda. And uh, that led to a discussion about can, we, can an advancement come for marginalized groups with 
or without oppression. So do you think that as more feminist movements take hold and more movements for female equality take hold, can there be, can there be a movement without oppression as an impetus? Yeah, I do. Um, I mean, I, indeed, I think that, um, I, I think that the cause of women's empowerment is one that is winning. I mean, it is, there has been so much progress. I mean, if, frankly, in this country, if you think about uh, the way rape is treated, still a lot of room for improvement, but dramatically better than it was a generation ago. Uh, domestic violence is taken so much more seriously now than it was a generation ago. Um, and again, we, you know, lots of room for improvement. But, um, and I think if one looks around the world, one likewise sees real improvement. One of the things that always struck me in Afghanistan was that the U.S. military really perceived that soldier, American soldiers were much less likely to be attacked in districts where girls were going to school. Um, and so they were, the U.S. military was a passionate advocate of getting more girls in school as a force to help change Afghanistan. And so one moment you'd be talking to a general and he'd be, you know, planning airstrikes against the Taliban, and the next moment he'd be trying to get more girls in school. And, you know, a, a general in that situation, hard-bitten general, has so much more street credibility than a bleeding-heart liberal New York Times columnist. Uh, and, um, I, but I will say that I think there are a lot of metrics where we need improvement. I think we sometimes overemphasize the metric of political involvement and political leadership for women. When Cheryl and I were writing Half the Sky, we looked at women who'd been presidents or prime ministers, and there was no correlation between a female president or prime minister and leadership on girls' education or on maternal mortality. Now, uh, it's, there's pretty good evidence, actually mostly from India, that it matters a great deal to have a woman as a village leader. I think, and I think more broadly that's true, that having women at the grassroots probably matters a great deal. Um, I think the evidence is much less obvious that it matters having um, women at the top. Um, and I, um, you know, I think there's some risk that we focus on something that is very visible, like is there a female prime minister, rather than on things like getting more girls in school um, and so on. Thank you. We're here. Can't see who it is. It's me. <laughs> Hi, <Dashiell>. everyone. <laughs> is that Dashiell? Yes, it is. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, uh, my name is Dashiell. Um, I'm a political science senior uh, from Carlisle, Pennsylvania. And I'm actually, I was really excited to hear you speaking because I read China Wakes as I was on a ICA in China with Goucher. So uh, it was quite ironic. Um, my question is, it kind of draws from the book uh, China Wakes, discussing how the incredible amount of infanticide the Chinese had at one point, um, and also how women in China had to almost prostitute themselves out in order to get good jobs, especially in cities. Um, and I was wondering if you had seen a decrease in both of those instances, especially as I hope both men and women have valued women in the workplace and women in the general society more over the years. Um, there has been certainly less female infanticide in China, but as ultrasound has spread, 
then what happens, ultrasound machines, what happens is that uh, parents who are determined to have a son, they don't wait until childbirth, they get an ultrasound, and if they see that the woman is pregnant with a uh, girl, then they get an abortion. And so in China these days, you have almost 120 boys born for every 100 girls. And um, as you know, that is going to be a hugely destabilizing force for China in the long run. There can be a lot of young men who are never going to find uh, wives. And that is, a, uh, that is a real problem for China. Um, there uh, is still a huge amount of prostitution in China. China probably has more prostitution than any country in the world. It tends to be more um, out of desperation or more kind of quasi-voluntary. In other words, there aren't pimps behind it. The women themselves keep the money. And so that's why it is a much better situation than, for example, India um, or Nepal or these other countries. Uh, it's, you know, it's far from ideal, but it's not brutal and coercive in the way it is in so many other countries. Uh, and, and I should also say, I mean, it, um, as you saw in China yourself, that there, there's sometimes a feeling that we can't really do anything about gender attitudes in other countries. And I think people are particularly shaped by what they see in Afghanistan, for example. And think, well, what can we do about Afghans who just think girls shouldn't go to school? Well, it is embedded in culture, but 100 years ago, you had real misogyny embedded deeply in Chinese culture. And you had not only female infanticide, you had foot binding. Uh, you had girls in some areas who wouldn't even get a name. They were just third daughter, fourth daughter. Um, and that changed, and you know, relatively quickly. Foot binding had been a, a problem for, for centuries, and then in the course of 30, 40 years, it was pretty much, it was essentially eliminated. Um, and so in the same way, I think that even where these problems of patriarchy, misogyny, are really deeply embedded in, in culture, um, that there can be real progress. Culture is not immutable. Thank you. Hi. My name, sorry. My Me, name is Dingell, and I'm very interested in seeing... I, I'm sorry. The microphone is either not on or okay. you're not... Uh, hi, my name is Danielle. I'm very interested in studying uh, women's issues and sociology. Um, my question uh, is that I've been volunteering with an anti-human trafficking organization for the past two years or so. One of the problems I have a lot of uh, trouble addressing is the lack of hard statistics on this kind of information. And I was wondering if you could comment on the academic perspective of research and what we can do to encourage universities to take this up as an academic issue. You're absolutely right. No, I mean, this is a huge problem that the data is just kind of non-existent. We, and we really, we really don't know how many girls are uh, trafficked in the US. We, we know that there are plenty of girls out in the streets who are um, under 18. We know that there are a lot of adult women who are selling sex consensually, who are not using a pimp. Uh, we know that there are a lot who are coerced by pimps. We don't really have a sense of the relative shares of these or the numbers. Um, we don't have a sense of the trends. The, you know, the numbers arrested are kind of meaningless as a trend figure. And 
much of the research on this is done by people who have a very strong attitude, a very strong belief. And I find I, I'm, it makes me somewhat suspicious of some of those numbers. Um, so I think there's real room for um, academic work and to try to get a, get a sense of what the scale of the problem is, uh, what interventions work better. Um, and because that also has tended to be just very, very controversial. And in general, each side tends to, you know, start out with a position and then go after evidence that will confirm its own prejudices. Thank you. Thank you. Back over here. Hello. Uh, my name is Ashley Forbes. I'm a senior Peace Studies major. And in studying various conflicts and scholars this year who report on such conflicts, what has come up in the classroom on various occasions is this notion of access and who has access to these areas and why. And my question for you is, throughout the years, how have you been able to gain access to areas such as brothels that have been proven to be quite dangerous? Um, you know, I, I, I tend to just go. Um, <laughs> And um, you, I have a certain amount of, I mean, at the end of the day, in many of these places, having white skin and a blue passport offers a certain amount of protection. Um, the brothel owners, for example, I mean, they will, they will murder girls in their care. Indian brothels and Pakistani brothels in particular are um, quite, quite regularly will murder uh, girls uh, who try to escape, for example, to set, a, um, set an example for the others, to terrify the others. But at the end of the day, I don't think they're going to do anything too terrible to a New York Times reporter. I just think it would not be in their interest. I always tell myself that anyway. Um, <laughs> and, um, do you find that your gender has any role in that, in your access? Um, I mean, in some cases, when I first began to go into the Cambodian brothels, then they thought I might be a customer, and so they would, they would welcome me. Uh, I mean, the problem was that I could never... I mean, it was useless for me to be in a room alone with a girl because I didn't speak Khmer, the Cambodian language, uh, and it was always a little awkward when I insisted I wanted to go into the room but bring this interpreter with me. Uh, <laughs> um, and... Uh, so, um, uh, so I, I don't know actually that, uh, I mean, uh, there, there have been some um, women reporters who've done just brilliant work on this kind of issue. I don't know that gender helps a good deal. I do think that being an American helps keep me safe to some degree. In, in Darfur, I remember once, um, um, well, I... I remember once uh, I was with my also American photographer. We were just coming back from a massacre site, and uh, we saw the Janjaweed who had, who had committed this massacre, and they went through a government checkpoint. And then that same government checkpoint uh, stopped us, and they said that we could um, go on, my photographer and I. They didn't want to mess with us, but they arrested our interpreter, uh, 19-year-old Sudanese kid we had hired for a few days. And they said, oh, we're just going to hold them for an investigation. 
it was pretty clear that the investigation would end 10 minutes after we drove away and he'd get a bullet in his head. Uh, and it was, um, you know, we, we just, we tried everything. We tried to bribe them to let him go. Uh, we tried to charm them. Uh, and they, uh, they were uncharmable and unbribable. Um, and finally we said we just can't go without him. Uh, they then detained us as well. But again, doing something really nasty to us was a higher pay grade decision. And so they called their commanding officer. Uh, they locked us up in a, a detention hut, which I will never forget because it had a mural on the wall of one man being held down and being impaled by two others with his stake. And it was the worst possible place to spend when you're, to sit when you're being detained in, by the Sudanese um, government. But then the commanding officer uh, finally showed up and he freed us all. And um, in the meantime, our vehicle had got stuck in the sand. And so then he ordered the men who had arrested us to help push us out. Um, and, uh, you know, you, um, I, in terms of access, actually, that, the way I got in on that trip, uh, Sudan had, was generally barring me admission, but uh, Kofi Annan made a brief trip into Darfur. And he only stayed a few hours, but he... Uh, he took me in on his plane, and I, um, I decided I was going to miss the plane out. And I didn't, I was a little concerned about this because it was very nice of him to, to bring me in. And I didn't want them, you know, waiting for me, thinking I was in trouble or something. And so I, uh, I told him that, you know, I just want you to know that I think I'm going to miss the plane when you guys go out, and I don't want you to... To, to wait for me. And he gulped <laughs> and he said, okay. And I, I really appreciated that. That let me get right in the heart of Darfur when the Sudanese government didn't know I was there. Um, and um, uh, the other great secret of access I learned was that getting through a lot of these checkpoints, um, uh, there were aid workers who would have these um, you know, strings around their necks with all kinds of passes. And I was thinking, well, I'm never going to be able to get the passes. But uh, uh, I realized that a lot of the guys at the checkpoints couldn't actually read English. And uh, I put my United Mileage Plus card <laughs> on a string and got to the checkpoint. So it's amazing the respect they have for Mileage Plus. Uh, <laughs> Let's come back over here. Hello, my name is Will Harris. I'm a sophomore in international relations and French double major. And my question was about, um, in your talk, you mentioned a lot of economic solutions to the problem of uh, inequality. But you also showed us a lot of um, scenarios from totalitarian um, governments. And so I was wondering if you think that, say, advocacy for democratic representation plays a role alongside ec economic solutions and what the interplay between those two um, tracks could take? You know, it's a good question. Um, and I think it's one that their evidence is mixed on. Um, I think that <coughs> the evidence is pretty good that um, uh, um, some of the worst depression comes and the, and the, the worst lifestyle comes from, um, you know, very oppressive countries. On the other hand, it's also true that some really oppressive countries, politically, 
um, have delivered the goods economically. I mean, China is a pretty good example of that. Somebody mentioned Rwanda earlier. Rwanda is, um, in many ways, very repressive, um, but it runs a very efficient, very uncorrupt um, government that is raising people's living standards even as it's repressing those same people. Um, I do think, I guess think I would say that in a desire for greater um, populist representation, greater democracy, the U.S. and the West, we tend to push elections, that for us democracy tends to mean elections, since we put everything in the elections toolbox. And elections are, tend to be expensive in countries where there are ethnicities that are competing. They don't necessarily do that much to advance minority rights um, or to kind of soothe national wounds. Um, and in contrast, I don't think we put enough emphasis on the civil society toolbox, which is also, I think, part of democratic solutions. And I would put local journalists in that category. Some of these local journalists in countries are just heroic in standing up to corruption, in standing up to dictators. Um, they, I am just proud to be in the same profession as some of these people. In Ethiopia, uh, there's a journalist named Eskinder Nega, who is serving an 18-year prison sentence for standing up to the, to the regime. And I mention him at every opportunity in hopes of embarrassing the, uh, the Ethiopian uh, government. And I wish the U.S. would speak up a little more forcefully for people like him because, you know, somebody like that will reduce... The, if you have a few voices like that in civil society, they will reduce corruption in a country uh, by millions and millions and millions of dollars. And yet, we tend to speak out only when journalists in um, Iran or countries we don't like are in prison. We're much less forceful about that in, among, when our allies do it. Why do you suppose we don't speak out about a, a journalist in Ethiopia who's in prison for 18 years like that? I think that uh, we have our... Well, I mean, I think we probably do a little bit here and there, but I think that uh, from the point of view of... Um, um, the ambassador or the assistant secretary of state for that region. You know, we have lots of issues on the agenda. We want to make sure that Ethiopia is helping us in Somalia, is helping us fight against al-Qaeda here and there, uh, is uh, cooperating with President Obama on other issues. And it's it's just kind of convenient for everybody concerned not to worry about Eskindernega. Um, and so we don't. Let's go back over here. Hi, I'm Katie Maurer, and I'm a sophomore Peace Studies major and Africana Studies minor. Um, and my question um, has to do with how you tell stories in your writing um, and how you, you balance activism and academia to find the truth. In, um, around the issue that you're trying to um, talk to people about. So how do you give people a reason to care but still acknowledge how complicated whatever issue you're talking about is? That's a really, it's an important question. It's a really tough question. I, um, and I can't claim that I get the, the balance right. There are plenty of people who think I get the balance completely wrong. Um, the, the, um, I became interested in this question uh, 
when reporting from Darfur. I would go to Darfur, I'd see these villages that had been burned, people massacred, and I would write these columns, and it just felt as if it was disappearing in a pond without a ripple. And um, this is 2004. I don't know if you remember then, but at least some of those who were in New York may remember that there were a couple of uh, red-tailed hawks in Central Park then that were pushed out of their nest in an apartment building on the edge of Central Park, and they were homeless. The male was pale male. And uh, New Yorkers were all up in arms about these two homeless hawks. And I couldn't generate the same outrage about hundreds of thousands of people being slaughtered in Darfur. And I thought, what is wrong with me? And that led me to think more about my storytelling and how I can be more effective. And it led me in particular to the work of a, uh, of a social psychologist called Paul Slovic, who has done a lot of work about looking at why we care, what makes us care. And... Uh, his research suggests that it's largely about two things. It's one about, um, at least the opening is about an individual story. That what connects us, what, what moves, what lights up our brain, if you will, is that, that individual story that we can empathize with. And once you tell that story, then you can begin to throw in other information. But, I mean, we all know that, you know, that one death is a tragedy, a million is a statistic. Well, the point at which we begin to get numbed is when n equals 2. The moment you actually add a second identifiable victim, then people's empathy begins to, to drop. Um, and the other lesson from his work is the importance of not leaving people with a feeling that it's terrible but hopeless, but leaving people with a sense that there is an arc, that things can get better, that if they do something that there can be a different outcome. And I think, in fact, that a lot of us in journalism, in the humanitarian world, do precisely the opposite. We talk about how there are millions of people suffering from this or that. And we tend not to emphasize the progress, but rather how terrible things are. And so I think we do precisely the things that are calculated to make people tune out. Um, we, so I began to apply the lessons from Paul Slovak uh, from his research, and in Half the Sky, we, um, we applied them quite to, That's why if you read the chapters, you know, each chapter may plumb a pretty low area for some person. We try to end on a high note to show that there can be a difference, that there can be a better outcome. Um, and, um, you know, there's always a trade-off in what, in complexity, um, in, uh, in, and it's, it's often pretty, it's, you know, it's difficult to figure that out, uh, 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 what, you, what you say when you want to get people to, to come in. I, I, um, people will periodically come up to me and say, oh, you're such a great crusader. And I always kind of flinch at that because I think that a crusader is somebody who may spend too much time trying to crusade and not enough time paying attention to the facts and and uh, but there's a there's a fine balance there. When I go to villages I will sometimes really feel terrible. Like in Darfur I'd go to a village I'd be uh, scared um, I'd be nervous for myself for my driver I want to get out as fast as I can I'm looking for the best story I can to shake people up in America and you know I come across somebody uh, a man who's been shot in the leg and he's trying to tell me his story. And I'm thinking, I can find a better story than this. 
uh, and I'm saying, okay, you know, I'm really sorry about your leg. Is there any, you know, kid who's been shot? Uh, and, uh, you know, then you find, finally you find the eight-year-old girl who's been shot with, you know, wide eyes, and, and you know that you've got somebody who is going to make Americans spill their coffee over their breakfast. And that is really what I want. I, that, uh, I've only got one shot to try to get people to care and to care enough to then call the member of Congress, do something else, and I want to fire the most powerful ammunition I can. Um, but you feel pretty terrible when you're bypassing all these other people in hopes of getting the very best story you can. Thank you. Christina? Hi, uh, my name is Christina Kim, and I'm an intended peace studies major. And I'm also from uh, Little Rock, Arkansas, which is, uh, uh, which is actually the headquarters of Heifer International, that organization you mentioned. Um, and I've visited many times, and I, I thank you for mentioning it. It's a wonderful organization where, like, instead of uh, getting your daughter or a friend uh, $20 worth of sweaters from Old Navy, you could buy uh, baby chicks or, like, a goat to support a family in Bosnia for the same price. Um, um, and, uh, yeah, thank you for mentioning it. Um, with yeah. that being said, uh, my question is, do you think that the soul... Um, solution for gender inequality and socioeconomic inequality throughout the world. It, do you think the sole solution is for Western philanthrop philanthropy um, slash is it um, is that the sole solution for the Western world to kind of save these underdeveloped countries? Um. I don't think there's any solution. I think most of the change is going to come from within countries. Um, um, I do think that it's perfectly fine. For, I mean, the question comes up periodically about cultural imperialism. Uh, you know, is it appropriate for Western countries to object when, if Afghanistan, if Pashtuns in Afghanistan don't want to educate their daughters, uh, if uh, um, Sudanese uh, want to? Um, circumcise their daughters, use, use female genital mutilation. You know, is that appropriate? Is it any of our business? Um, I think it is. I think that in general one should defer to other cultures. At some point I think the human rights issues become so important that I think it is important. I would cite China as an example where foot binding, where international pressure um, helped lead to a change in foot binding. Uh, Cheryl's grandmother's feet were bound. Uh, she's always incredibly grateful that there was Western pressure on China uh, to end that. But it's a hard issue. And I also think we're more effective when the people, you know, when our role in the West isn't telling people, okay, send your daughters to school or stop FGM, but rather empowering local people from within the culture to lead that change. It's just, it just, you know, works much better. Um, the same way our schools in Afghanistan would be, often be much better if they weren't, you know, you certainly don't want a school that says made in the USA or contributed by the people of the USA. The safest place for girls to study in southern Afghanistan is in a mosque. Um, and um, that, uh, uh, you know, and to use Pakistani textbooks rather than Afghan textbooks that have Karzai's uh, photo in them, this kind of thing. Um, but there are ways of addressing these kinds of issues. As to solutions, you know, there there's no solution as such. It's, it's back to kind of the question that there, I think on almost all the problems we can think about, there isn't 
a magic solution. There's no silver bullet. It's, it is more that silver buckshot analogy. And the, what I would, the analogy I would use is auto safety in this country. Um, since 1960, we've reduced the fatality rate per 100 million miles by more than 80%. But it was no one intervention. It was everything. We, we threw everything at the wall and see what stuck. You know, it was seat belts. It was airbags. It was better bumpers. Um, it was graduated licenses for young drivers. It was a crackdown on drunk driving. It was better lights at night. It was better roads. It was more roundabouts, better stoplights, lots of research. It was a million things, no one of which really moved the needle that much. But collectively, they save many, many, many tens of thousands of lives each year. And I think that is ultimately the way we're going to chip away at domestic poverty, at global poverty, at uh, the oppression of women and girls around the world. Great, thank you. Do you think you will ever develop a severe case of compassion fatigue and do that story about southern France? <clears throat> or just go I, live there? I confess that I, I mean, I do suffer from compassion fatigue. I, I do feel calluses when I, you know, when I go to the, those villages. Um, uh, last year I twice went to the Nuba Mountains in uh, Sudan, which are being starved, which are being bombed. Um, there are starving people all around you. Um, there are people who've been injured by these bombs. Uh, it's scary because these bombers are going around. And you're always thinking, you know, where you can go if a bomb drops. And you don't, you are, maybe, it, maybe an ER physician is like that, but you just really manage to tune out so much of this and uh, tune out your natural sympathies. You're looking for the best interview you can get, the best story, and you, and you, I mean, I, I, um, I really, and I can sleep at night after that. Uh, I'm, um, uh, the things that, the things where you can never really develop a callus over, I mean, sometimes things will just break through that. Uh, or when you put somebody at risk, that you just never, uh, you never, uh, at least I never, that's something that always really shakes me for, for weeks and weeks and weeks. Um, and I lose a lot of sleep over that. But, uh, but I, that compassion fatigue, I, I, can, I confess that it's arrived. Um, we're going to take just two more questions. Let's go here first. You want to just yell it out and I'll repeat okay. it? No, there oh, we go. Okay. Oh, here we hi. go. Okay. Um, hi, my name is Cecile and I'm a sophomore in high school. Um, and my question for you is, uh, how does Western media go about reporting on victims of gender and hate crimes without exploiting them and making them even more susceptible to danger? That's a great question. I mean, that's when I talked about um, this you know, concern about getting people in trouble. One of the things that I was thinking about was actually writing about rape victims in Darfur. Um, there's, you know, there's sort of a fine line between writing about sex trafficking, for example, in a way that will get people to care, but in a way that isn't salacious or voyeuristic. Um, and again, it's it's a uh, you know it's a balancing act. Um, 
uh, I really believe that it's some, I believe that we should try, um, I mean, there is a danger of something called sort of poverty porn, where you, you know, hit every possible button. Um, on the other hand, I think that the more common mistake has been not pushing enough buttons. And the result is that so many things just don't get covered and don't get, uh, and don't get resources directed to them. Um, um, and in general, I think that we in the media don't do a good enough job covering a lot of these kind of basic humanitarian issues, especially those that are international. And I fear that it's going to get worse. Uh, I know there's some of you who are journalists. I hope you'll help address that. But the problem at the end of the day is that there isn't a lot of interest in these issues. And if you are a um, executive producer of a uh, TV show, of a TV news show, then you can send a crew off to Congo and um, it'll be risky, it'll be expensive, and your ratings will go down. And then you can put a Democrat and a Republican in a studio together and have them yell at each other, and your ratings will go up. And that is the and fundamental challenge. That um, one of the things that I just found most dispiriting was um, ABC News had worked out an agreement with the Gates Foundation. The Gates Foundation paid uh, ABC News, $1.5 million, basically to cover global health, global nutrition. Essentially bribed ABC News to cover really important issues. And they did some terrific reporting for that. It was a one-year program. They won prizes. It was really, it was, I think, a su great success. At the end of the year, ABC News did not renew the arrangement because even though they were being paid to cover these issues, even though the journalism, by everybody's agreement, was really terrific journalism, they found from their metrics that when they showed this terrific journalism, that's when viewers were going to the bathroom or going to the kitchen. And um, I you know, think part of it is that all of you need to help hold us accountable. We in journalism claim to be fulfilling this important public role. Um, we ask for very special legal privileges. You know, hold our feet to the fire uh, and hold us accountable, uh, too. These are important stories. A lot of us went into journalism thinking that this is something of a calling or an important responsibility. Um, hold us accountable for, for fulfilling that. Up here. Hello. I'm Missy. I'm a senior philosophy major. Um, and my question actually kind of has to do with what you were just talking about. Um, and I was wondering how, how you would keep up, say, to keep up the integrity of journalism, especially when there's so much media and pop culture, and even respected journalists who promote um, and perpetuate oppression towards women and prostitution and kind of work against everything that you're working for, and kind of what would you say about that? Like, like popular TV and even some Journalists, you do that. Um, you know, I'm. I think that sort of conflict is just kind of inevitable, and I, um, I think it just 
you know, has to inspire those of us who believe in the in issues that we do to, to go on and, and push ahead and wage those arguments. Um, I'm, um, I have pretty thick skin, so it tends not to bother me too much, but, um, you know, there are going to be those disagreements. I do think that we need to think about more creative ways to get coverage of these kinds of issues so that they don't slip between the cracks. Uh, that was, you know, that was why, you know, so Cheryl and I, when we were trying to figure out how to take half the sky further, and one of the problems with a book is that basically the people who read a book tend to be those who start out agreeing with it. You know, in general, we, you tend to preach to the choir. So we, we sort of took a risk and we tried a PBS documentary, and we did something that we thought was kind of risky, which was bring in some actresses, some famous actresses, star power, and... Now, there was a downside. There was a risk that we would cheapen issues that we really care deeply about. Uh, there was a risk that we would, um, you know, that one of our actresses would get arrested for shoplifting <laughs> somewhere. I mean, there were all kinds of things that might have gone wrong. But at the end of the day, um, at the end of the day, they did a fabulous job, and there were a lot of people who watched the special because. Uh, Evan Mendez and Olivia Wilde and, and George Clooney were part of it. They brought, they brought that light to these issues. Um, the Facebook game, that was another experiment. And again, it, Cheryl and I really worry that this almost makes a caricature or a comedy out of issues that couldn't be more important, like modern slavery of sex trafficking. And yet, um, I think that we need to be more experimental and take risks if we want to get an audience and we have to figure out new platforms. We have to follow our audience into new platforms. Um, and those of you who are students, you know, you're, you're using all kinds of new platforms. We in the journalism business have to be a, do a much better job of following you there. Nick, thank you very much. This is a message we needed to hear. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You're embarrassing me. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, Nick will sign books. Nick will sign books in the Rosenberg Gallery just outside the auditorium. So, hope some of you will join us there. Thanks again. Thanks very really much. Wonderful. Thank you.